I would like you to turn to 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I would like to read the whole chapter, but I won't for the sake of time. But maybe later today you can take the time to read through the entire chapter. Actually, you should read from chapter 2.14 all the way to 4.6. The main thoughts are going to be found in chapter 3. Verse number 6, Paul the Apostle writes these words, "...who has made us competent..." To be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse number 8. How much more will the ministry of the Spirit come in glory? Verse 18, and all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. If you want to know which version of the Bible that is, that's the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version that I read from this morning. This is a complicated chapter for a lot of people to think through, and there's a reason for that. And I'll tell you why in a second. But when Paul makes these statements, he is very highly charged with a lot of emotion when he writes these words. When he writes this chapter, he is making a very passionate plea to the Corinthians who he birthed in the faith. You notice that the word glory there is used a lot of times in this chapter, and you're no stranger to me saying this statement. You know the end of the story. It ends in glory. And it's the high point of the purpose of Paul's apostolic ministry to prepare people for glory. It's constantly in his mind. He was never interested in just introducing people to the beginnings of the process of salvation. But he took steps to ensure that you're going to be there, not just at the beginning of the process, but you're going to be there at the end of the prophecy when the glory of the Lord will be fully manifest at His appearing. As verse 18 says, the Spirit of the Lord is to take us from glory to glory. It's progressive, for sure. And he also makes the statement here in this chapter that this whole process, from new birth until the appearing of the Lord, is only possible without the dynamic ministry of the Spirit of a living God. The Holy Spirit is the key of going from glory to glory. Now, as I said, he's very passionate when he writes this chapter. Very, very passionate. The Corinthian church, if you read Acts chapter 18, was founded by Paul the Apostle. When you read Acts chapter 18, you discover that he was very, very quickly rejected 
by the Jewish community, by the synagogue there, for his message about Jesus. As a result of proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ, he suffered a lot of persecution as a result. So much so that he almost gave up in Corinth. And the Lord appeared to him in a vision in a night and said, You be encouraged, Paul. I'm going to see to it that no man harms you in the city because I plan on saving a lot of people in this city. And sustained by a supernatural vision in the night, knowing that God had really placed him there, in spite of all the suffering and all the persecution he was for his message about Jesus, he was able to stay there for another 18 months. When he describes his time, that, 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 those 18 months, you can find passages in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2 Corinthians 12 that he will testify that those 18 months was a time of perhaps unparalleled Holy Spirit type of ministry. He would say that I was fully dependent upon the supernatural enabling of the Holy Spirit, both in speech and in miracles. I didn't speak enticing words of men's wisdom. I don't want your faith to be based upon just my reason alone. I want you, your faith to be based because you had an encounter with the power of the living God so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but your faith would be in the power of God. He would say, surely all the signs of an apostle were with you in much patience and suffering and in the miraculous. And as a result of his persevering in the power of the Spirit, the Corinthian church was remarkably endowed with all kinds of spiritual gifts and spiritual manifestations. While he was there for those 18 months, he did not receive offerings from the people. Rather, he would say how he labored with his own hands. He was a tent maker. But his critics used that against him because he appeared, in spite of the fact that he had an education that only the very elite of the world would ever hope to have. You know, the the education he had was tremendous. He could speak three languages at least very, very fluently. He had a brilliant mind. And this person who should be a, a massive university PhD professor type of an individual is working with his hands, making tents, laboring with his tents. Why did he work with his hands? Wasn't that beneath his dignity? And that's what his enemies had to say about him. And sometime after Paul left the city of Corinth, a variety of troubles erupted in the church there in Corinth. There were doctrinal issues, there were immoral issues there. I mean, it's all pretty serious stuff. And you can read about a lot of that in 1 Corinthians uh, for sure. But perhaps the most painful thing about his relationship was that with that Corinthian church was the personal attack on his character brought by false teachers who had gone in there and they made personal character assassination their primary thing against Paul the Apostle. 
These false teachers that went in there, if you keep reading through all the first and second Corinthians, sarcastically challenged Paul as if he hadn't a clue what he was doing or what he was about. They challenged his authority because they said, that man doesn't have credentials. We have come with letters of recommendation. We are commended by so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. But Paul has no credentials. They challenged his visible weaknesses because he did have physical challenges. He has to labor with his own hands. They said he's fickle. He changes his travel plans. He says he's come to visit, then he cancels out and he doesn't visit. They say, boy, he can write letters. Boy, he can write long letters, and boy, they're hard to think through, and they're weighty stuff, and you really got to concentrate to understand his letters. It's not light reading whatsoever. But when he shows up in person, he's quite unimpressive. As a matter of fact, he's not even a good public speaker. He's a babbler. I mean, I can show you all the verses where they bring these accusations, but I won't bother to give you all of that stuff. He's just, he can't speak with persuasion. He's just a babbler. It doesn't look like he's a very glorious or powerful authoritative figure. To them, they demeaned Paul and said he is just a man of very unimpressive flesh. Because these false teachers that wanted to take over the Corinthian church had to discredit Paul. And they had a definition of glory, what they felt glory was. And they interpreted glory to them, these false teachers. It means some sort of outward, visible success. A kind of triumphalism, where you reign like kings, where you're always in authority, you're never under the weather, you're always over every situation, that, that you're just flying and soaring in the heavens without challenges and without trials, you're never sick, you never have a need, all the kind of health and wealth uh, type of stuff. And he said they, they were bringing that there. And we can't, by reading the epistles, know exactly the doctrine that these false teachers were, were pushing. But we know this, the way Paul talks about them, is that they came in to take over the church. They lorded over the, their listeners. They took large sums of money from the congregation. They preached a Jewish form of the gospel that was going to bring the New Testament spirit-filled believer, they're going to take them and put them back under the Old Testament law. To those false teachers, there was no further covenant to come besides the, the covenant of Moses. And maybe they taught that Jesus was just a perfect Jew and you've got to obey the law like Jesus obeyed the law. I mean, they were wrong but nevertheless, extremely influential. The Corinthians are his children. He loves them and he carries them deeply in his heart. These false teachers are taken over the church, filling the church with false doctrine, and to do that, doing character assassination against Paul, so they would never listen to Paul's influence anymore. Can you understand now when he writes 2 Corinthians, he's very emotional. Reading 2 Corinthians is not easy because Paul is agitated when he writes. 
And if you ever try to read it, I'll guarantee you, you, you struggle with it because you, where on earth is Paul going? He's talking about one thing and a second later he's talking about something else and then he's talking about something else and then he's talking about something else and you're looking for how do these things even connect? And he's just so full of it. He just mind just goes here and there. And the writing of Second Corinthians is very agitated. And he's, he's passionate and he's emotional when he writes it. But he is forced to defend his apostolic ministry. But not only is he forced to defend his apostolic ministry, but specifically he has to defend its character and its nature. These false teachers are claiming to have great glory. And here you are, Paul. You're not a wealthy man. You're sick in your body. You're challenged in your body. You labor with your own hands. Very unimpressive. And Paul has to defend, because according to his enemies, according to their definition of what glory is, Paul has no signs of glory. So he doesn't want this Corinthian church to succumb to their, these erroneous outsiders who've come in to take advantage of them. And they're flaunting their authority by having these letters of commendation. And believe you me, if you read all of Second Corinthians, this is a huge, it's a big issue. You know, having these letters of commendation. But Paul is going to say to them, you can read this in chapter 2, he says, these false teachers are nothing but peddlers. They're hawking their goods on the street. They have a watered down and a broken down version of what the gospel is. And they are taking advantage of you only to promote themselves. That's what they're doing and that's what they're after. And so Paul has got to respond to that situation. Hence you have the purpose of why 2 Corinthians was written. That's the situation that he's speaking to. But when he gives his personal and very emotionally driven defense, he is going to give for you and me the most penetrating insight as to what the nature and the purpose of what Holy Spirit-empowered apostolic ministry is as the key to the New Covenant. So I'm glad he went through this because I get to understand on a greater level what New Testament ministry is supposed to be. If you back up from chapter 3 and read verses 2, 14 to 17, he, he draws a picture which I won't get into, uh, but he, the point is this. In spite of my so-called weaknesses that you think that I have, you want someone who always triumphant and on top of it. You want somebody who has no blemishes, no physical challenges, no hardships, no trials in their life. That's what you're looking for. And he says, but in my life, I'm like a prisoner of war. And I'm always exposed to death all the time. And I've been taken captive and I'm, I'm led from death to death. If I'm not in the fire, I'm in the frying pan. I'm always constantly challenged. And you don't like that. But that's the story of my life. is always being under pressure and always being challenged. But in spite of what you think I am, here is the truth. My ministry is effective. That's what he says. These false teachers fail to recognize 
that the ministry of the gospel has to be the same as the message of the gospel. Now, the message of the gospel, according to Paul, is that God took on weakness. Almighty, sovereign God, creator of the heavens and the earth, took on weakness. He took on mere mortal flesh. He became so weak that he became subject to death. And he was so weak that he allowed mere mortal man to murder him on the cross. And the point that Paul makes is this. It's the weakness of God that's your salvation. You're not saved because God made himself strong. You're saved today because God made himself weak. Are you catching that point? You are saved because God showed himself weak. And he allowed the world to take advantage of his weakness. That's the gospel. Now, since that's what the message of the gospel is, that in the weakness of God you are saved, then the gospel is this, that God likes to show his power through weakness. Are we catching that? God likes to show his power through weakness. So when you look at me and say you're a weak man and not this glorious person with wealth and health and jets and personal cars and lamos and, and all these types of things that you think are the representative of glory, I'm just living out the message of the cross that in the midst of weakness, the power of God is revealed. Amen. Are we catching the point? And that's his answer to his critics. And then he would say in those closing verses of chapter 214 that in all the weakness of my life, I have this amazing effect. He says, like I'm an aroma. And he says, the way I affect some people is that life comes to them. The way I affect other people, they're at war against me. And there's no neutral response to my ministry. It's either you're birthed into life or you're birthed into fight. Everywhere that Paul went, it was revival or riot. It was never a quiet thing. They never had to say, oh, did Paul come to our city? I didn't know about that. It wasn't as a guest speaker came in and he went out and said, I never know he showed up in town. Whenever Paul showed up in town, it was revival or riot, and everybody knew about it. It wasn't done in a corner. He had this ministry in all of this weakness of either birthing people to life or birthing people into fight. Did we catch that? We need to understand this apostolic ministry is dynamic stuff. Is that correct? It's dynamic stuff. And he's going to ask the question. At the end of chapter 2, he's going to ask the question, and who is sufficient for these things? He says, I'm nothing like these peddlers. Those false teachers are people who water down the word of God. But I speak with sincerity, he says. I don't speak falsely. And I speak as somebody who has stood in the presence of the living God. That's what gives you power. It's not you're just speaking. You're speaking because you've stood in the presence of a living God. 
And there's the big difference. And when he says that kind of thing, he's trying to take a little poke at these false teachers because they say, well, Moses was in the presence of God. He says, I, t- I stand. No matter what you think of my outward appearance, I stand in the presence of God. And then when he gets into chapter 3 in his defense, the first issue he tackles is, so you want some credentials, do you? All of you false teachers come with your, your letters, but they're just written on ink and paper. And then with, with sarcasm, I mean, if you could hear it, if I could put the tone of voice that I think that Paul is using when he writes this letter, it's a sarcasm. It's like he says, you Corinthians, you're just a bunch of dumb turkeys. You know, I says, how can you Corinthians be so stupid, be so dumb, that when these people come with these letters saying, here, someone so-and-so-and-so recommends me, and they fight against me, and you don't think I have... He says, how were you birthed into this thing anyway? Whose ministry brought you into this anyway? You exist because of my ministry. And then you turn around, and you're asking for letters of recommendation from me? How dumb can you Corinthians get? He says, I do have a letter of recommendation, by the way. Because the gospel was this. That God is going to take out old hearts. And by the pen of the Holy Spirit, He is going to write His laws upon the tables of your hearts. And you are my letter. You are my recommendation because you are proof of the letter of God written by the Spirit of God. And you want me to give you more recommendation than your own experience of coming into the things of God. How dumb can you Corinthians get? The passion in which he writes this. We read these things so coldly and matter-of-factly. We need to get into the emotional passion that he writes this stuff with. What a bunch of turkeys they are. You know, I mean, that's, that's, he just can't believe it that they would ask such a question. So where, you know, the, the prophet said, I'm going to take that old heart out. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. By the power of my spirit, I'm going to write my laws on the tables of your heart. I'm going to write my laws in your heart. Write line my laws in your mind. You Corinthians under my ministry have become my letter of recommendation. Your changed lives are proof of that. But the question is, who is sufficient for these things? He says, so where does the power to do these things come from? What is it that's going to make our presence in our ministry cause other some people to come to life? And what is it going to make some other people to come to fight. Paul is going to say this, that the power behind this ministry is nothing other than the presence of the Spirit of God. That's what makes the difference. It is the presence of the Spirit of God. And it's not just being touched by His presence. When I hear, you know, wasn't the touch of God lovely upon our service today? I hope we have more than a touch. I hope we're gripped. I hope we're drowned in it. I hope it's not water to the angles, but it's waters to swim in. We need the presence of the Spirit 
of the living God. Because it's the presence of the Spirit that makes the difference. Paul would say, you ask for my credentials. He says, we are sufficient for these things. That to some were the aroma of life, and to others were the aroma of death. We are sufficient either to bring revival or riot. But that sufficiency, he says, has nothing to do of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God, who has enabled us to be ministers of the Spirit. The letter kills, but when the Spirit is around, it brings life. It is God who enables us by the Spirit. Now Paul has to go on to correct the false definition of glory that these false teachers have given. Their whole thing was this. They appealed to Moses as being glorious. Moses is the one in the Old Testament to get those commandments, ascended up the mount, and he entered into the cloud of God. He entered into the glory of God. And you remember when he came down the second time from the mountain with the commandments written down the second time. Do you remember how his face was shining? And you remember how his face was the glow with the glory? So much so the people didn't even want to look at the face of Moses. Man, now Moses, that was glory. Paul laboring with his own hands, physical challenges, financial challenges, all kinds of challenges. Not very glorious, is he? Moses, oh, face shining with the glory of God. And so they said, in order to have that kind of glory, you have to align yourself to the old covenant of Moses. Not like Paul, who only exhibits weakness in every way. But then when Paul is going to give his answer to these critics, he's going to say this, and listen to how shocking this must have sounded to the Corinthians, and how shocking it must have sounded to those false teachers. He would say this, that the old glorious covenant, the old covenant, was nothing but a ministry of death and condemnation. So it now remains, how do we figure out that if Moses can come down that mountain with glory all over his face, how could Paul say that it was a ministry of death and condemnation? How is that possible? To understand Paul's reasoning, you have to be familiar, obviously, with Exodus chapter 34, which is the chapter of Moses coming down the mountain with his face shining with glory. Now, Paul is going to say this, that old covenant did have glory, but there was a problem with the old covenant. The problem is not with Moses. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with the people who heard Moses, and the problem is still with the people in the synagogues who listened to Moses being read every Sabbath. The problem is not Moses, it's not the law. The problem is this. It is the condition of the heart of the people that hear Moses. Did you catch that? The problem is not Moses. The problem is not the law. The problem is the heart of the people. Even Moses who gave the law, who's the one who carried the tablets down from the mountain, would know that. 
In Deuteronomy, he says several times, in Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that my people, God says through Moses, Oh, that my people would have such a heart in them. Nothing wrong with my law, but the condition of your heart is such that you'll never keep it. And that's why in Deuteronomy 10.16, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, he says, a true Jew is not one who was circumcised physically. A true Jew is somebody who was circumcised in their heart. Because unless there's a change of heart, the law does nothing for you. Even Moses knew that. Even though the former covenant did have glory, it was destined to end. And it was destined to fade away for one very good reason. And listen carefully to this reason, because it's the key to understand what drives the Apostle Paul. That very good reason is this. It didn't have spirit. The giving of the law did not impart spirit to anybody. Nothing wrong with the law. Nothing wrong with the Moses. But unless you have an encounter with the spirit, your heart simply cannot keep the demands of the law. That's why the letter kills. Because the letter makes demands that you cannot keep. And without spirit, all the religion in the world is death. Come on. Without spirit, church is death. Is that saying it too harshly? Without spirit, tradition is deadly. Without the presence of God, the commands of God are death because demands are being made on hearts that are unable to respond and unable to keep. And so when the law comes, it represents condemnation and death because you can do nothing to meet the demands of the law. Therefore, without the presence of the Spirit... Everything is death. Ooh. Ouch. There's nothing wrong with the law. Romans chapter 7, he says the law is just. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is spiritual. Forgive me for the repetition, but it needs to be said. Without the power, the transformational power of the Holy Spirit... It will simply kill everybody who hears it. Ouch. The demand for righteousness can arouse the power of sin, but it is powerless to overcome it if there is no spirit of the living God accompanying it. Romans would say many times, Romans 2.29, Romans 7.6, we don't serve in letter. We serve in spirit. Many times it would say that. 
And because the giving of the law, as glorious as it was, was not accompanied by spirit, then Paul would say it was a glory that will not last. It is a glory that has an end to it. It's a glory that fades away. And for you spirit-filled people, to revert back to that kind of thinking and that kind of life, well, you're, you're just embracing a partnership with death and condemnation. Paul's words, not mine. He used the words, I did it. Paul's words, and not mine. But then Paul is going to say this. But there's a new covenant. Come on. You haven't been left in this terrible situation. There's a new covenant. The prophets prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. The prophets prophesied about the coming of the Holy Spirit that would fulfill the promises of God. That the law would make demands that you cannot keep, and because you cannot keep it, it's just condemnation. But there's coming a covenant, which thankfully is past tense to you and me. There's coming a covenant where God will actually change the condition of your heart, whereby a supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit, He takes the hardness out of your heart, gives you a heart of flesh, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to write life on the tables of your heart, And you are now able to keep the demands of God. You are now able to live in righteousness. You are now able to overcome. You are now able to live in victory. And keep the commands of God. So if the Old Testament ministry came with a glory, then please tell me what kind of glory must accompany the new covenant. What kind of glory have we tasted? You see, in verses 7 to 11, if you mark your Bibles, which I used to do all the time, in fact, I marked it so much, my dad said to me once, I can't figure anything in your Bible, he says, because everything, every word's marked. Notice how many times the word glory appears in verses 7 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He's going to make three contrasts from the lesser glory to the greater glory. Now, the old had glory, but it was the ministry of death. How shall we describe the glory of the new that brings the Spirit and imparts life to people? Did you catch that? That brings the Spirit... So life can be imparted to people. A second one, the old had glory, but it brought condemnation. So how are we going to describe the glory of the new covenant that brings the Spirit, and instead of condemnation, empowers for righteousness and actually transforms people's lives? How should we speak of the glory there? The third contrast, the old had glory, but it was meant to be done away with right from the beginning. Because it didn't bring spirit, therefore the glory was only temporary. So how are we going to describe the glory of the new covenant that brings the spirit and is permanent and it remains forever? There is such a superiority 
So no matter what you think of me, no matter what weaknesses you think, I am a minister of the new covenant, and through my weakness, the power of God is revealed, and no matter what you think of me, I am in a more glorious position than the old covenant. I mean, this is what's driving Paul through his argument here, all the way through 2 Corinthians. The glory of the new outshines the glory of the old. It's like you used to live with a 50-watt bulb. It's all the light you can get. But how many know if you hang, hold that 50-watt bulb to the full blaze of the sun, you're not even going to see the bulb anymore. In other words, it's been out-glorified with a greater glory. Amen? So much so that the former glory is not even visible anymore. We have a greater glory. Now, Paul has a lot of personal experience. That's why he's so passionate when he writes 2 Corinthians. Because he used to be a Pharisee. He used to be known as Saul the Pharisee. As a Pharisee, he was once blinded to the meaning of the glory on the face of Moses. But on the road to Damascus, he saw the glory to which Moses pointed. It was on the face of Jesus who was not veiled. He saw the glory on the face of Jesus. And having seen that, Paul experienced the blessings and the freedom of the Spirit. Having seen the glory of God on the face of Jesus, Paul, who used to be Saul, had to rethink his whole understanding of the Scriptures. He gives an explanation about why Moses put the veil on his face. According to Paul, the reason that Moses put the veil on his face was to hide it. Because Moses himself didn't want the people to camp around that glory as if that was the pinnacle and the height of the revelation of God. Because it did not come with spirit, that glory was temporary, it was fading, and it was going to point to a greater glory yet to come. According to Paul, that veil, there's an interpretation he gives, that veil serves as an illustration even today when Moses is still read in the synagogues. He says, the hearers cannot see the glory to which it is pointed because it's a glory that was hidden. They can't see it. It's a glory that was hidden. A veil is over their hearts. They simply cannot see the meaning of the glory of the law. Now Paul himself was once in that position, remember, as a Pharisee. But now when he preached in the synagogues after he had met Jesus, after he had seen the glory of God on the face of Jesus, every time he preached that message in the synagogue, well, most of the time he experienced great opposition and he would be thrown out. But on the road to Damascus, he could testify the veil was lifted off his heart and he saw the glory of the face of Jesus. Thank God the veil had been removed from his heart. Amen? And once you see the glory, folks, it changes your life. If you don't see the glory, you just carry on as life as normal. (laughs) But if you've seen the glory, your life will never be the same. Because Paul, in all his writings, develops a great theology of glory. We've already been touched by the glory of God. We've already seen it in the face of Jesus. But we're going to be transformed by the Spirit from glory to glory until the ultimate glory 
at the appearing of Jesus. Did you know I've ever told you that you are destined to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Did I ever tell you that you are a joint heir with him and his inheritance? Do we understand what that means? That glory makes the present things of this world quite irrelevant. And the opposition and persecution and suffering this world will throw at us, as we've said in previous studies, now becomes extremely trivial. You've seen the glory. If you've seen the glory in the face of Jesus, you get very bold. You get very confident. You get very open. But it's only in Christ that the veil is lifted. When Paul would speak about Moses with the veil, he said when he spoke to the people, the veil was there to hide that glory. But when he entered to the presence of the Lord to talk to the Lord, the veil came off. And Paul said, let me tell you what that means. It means whenever anybody turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's only Christ who can remove the veil. Amen. It's only Christ who can remove the veil. And then he would make the argument in those closing words that to turn to the Lord is to encounter the Holy Spirit. He says, now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now what does he mean by the Lord is that Spirit? What he's saying there is that it is the Spirit of the Lord. It's the Spirit that reveals Jesus to us. It's the Spirit that opens our eyes to see the glory. With the veil off our hearts, we're able to see and behold as in a mirror the glory of God. It's reflected in the face of Jesus. He would go on to say, it's the Spirit that takes us from glory to glory. From that initial revelation that we have to beholding Him at His appearing and being fully conformed to His image to participate in His appearing. It's the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus at the beginning, it's glory. When the Holy Holy Spirit transforms our character, it's glory. When the Holy Spirit opens the Scripture to us, it's glory. When the Holy Spirit empowers us for service, it's glory. When the Holy Spirit gives victory in our heart in spite of all our challenges, it's glory. When everybody thinks you should be down but your faith is up, folks, that's glory. When the Holy Spirit imparts to you a sense of victory, when the circumstances of life are trying to weigh you down, it's glory. I might have to get down there and shout amen myself. It's glory from beginning to end. It's the work of the Spirit of God to take you from glory to glory to glory until Jesus appears. That is the New Testament ministry. That is, according to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verses 1 to 6, that's the message that we're to preach. That's the gospel. To preach the gospel is to bring people into the knowledge of the glory of God, which is reflected in the face of Jesus Christ. To preach the gospel is to remove the veil over people's hearts. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, The God of this world has hidden the gospel from people. But to preach the gospel is to take that veil off of their hearts so people can look into the open face of Jesus whose face is not veiled.
It's not veiled. In the end, newsflash, in the end, the glory of God triumphs. Come on. In the end, the glory of God triumphs. But it's not just what these false teachers think, an unqualified triumphalism. But in this present world, the gospel is the power of God in the midst of your weakness. It's not the removal of your weakness. That happens when Jesus appears. It's not the removal, but it's the victory of God in the midst of your weakness. The rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 will make that very plain. Cast down but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. The life also of Jesus might be manifest in their mortal flesh. The inward man he keeps being renewed no matter what's happening on the outside. There's power in the soul. There's power in the spirit. So what does that tell us about ministry today? Listening to Paul give his defense. What's that telling us about what ministry should be like today? Well, it tells me something loud and clear. If we don't have the presence of God, we have nothing. If we don't have spirit, we have nothing. Without spirit... Preaching is letter that kills. Spirit imparts life. Without the accompanying spirit, the gospel is mere letter that condemns and destroys people. Paul did not depend on natural talents. Without the presence of God, no life is imparted. Without the presence of God, church will deconstruct into a lifeless routine which turns people off. Without the presence of God, the chances of losing children to the world is very real. No matter how much church you take them to. Without the presence of God, in time people become legalistic, harsh, judgmental, critical, and self-righteousness. Folks, the letter kills. The letter kills. But with the Spirit of God. Come on now. With the presence of God. It's not death. It's life. With the presence of God, it's not condemnation, but it's power for righteousness. With the presence of God, we're not embracing something that's going to fade away, but with the presence of God, we embrace something that is ever-increasing glory until the day Jesus appears and we are perfected in His image. With the presence of God. So folks, we need the Spirit. We need the words that the Spirit gives us. We need to speak as people who have stood in the presence of God. We need His enabling. We need to hear Him speak in our souls. We need the unction that comes from Him. We need His power. We need His revelation. And there's only one way to get it. Only one way. You know what it is? You've got to spend time and more time and more time and more time 
in His presence. That's the only way. You've got to spend much time in His presence, bending your ear to hear, bending our heart to receive, bending our souls to be filled, constantly waiting upon the Lord for the impartation of His Spirit continuously into our being. Ministry that changes the world is only possible because we dwell in His presence. End of story. We need the presence of the Lord. As Paul says, it is His Spirit that takes us from glory to glory.